talked about the whole this is going to be a game mat you know you got to have a game master and it's not it's not ai driven no it is ai driven uh, the the new edition yeah the new edition the new edition it's well, it's, it's I mean, all run by an app yeah but the, the, the new the, descent there's the, an app for that yeah the uh, the old one yes that one was game master driven yeah and i was sort of like i i absorbed that from you because i was like yeah i don't want uh, you know, because I mean, first of all, it's like I have no illusions. I know who's going to be the the game master if if I break out my game, and it's also just like uh, I, I want everybody to just sit around the table and play together wow. instead of like there's one person to go against. Although I know Todd loves that sort of thing, you know, sneaking up behind you with that poison dagger. But um, it's very mild poison. <laughs> Yeah, he but, wants you to suffer after he stabs you in the back. Yeah, really. That that paralytic. <laughs> he wants you to know intense pain. Yeah, you're paralyzed on the floor while he describes his entire betrayal. Yes. <laughs> I let you know ahead of time because the dagger itself was green. <laughs> I loved I loved the fact that when we played, even when we did that 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 uh, murder mystery in the home thing at Deb and Barry's ah, yes. decades ago. Yes. Like over ten years ago. It was still fucking you. <laughs> and that was, was it's random. Killer. It's almost yes. always random. It's with this random. Shit. Yes. It just somehow falls in my lap. <laughs> and I've just accepted this. It's insane. <laughs> it is insane. Jesus Christ. Uh, I recently got uh, an, I think it's called Unfathomable. It is uh, the Battlestar Galactica board game that was out. Years ago, mm-hmm. it has, has been unavailable now for like a decade plus. Right. That you were the Cylon uh, betrayer. Again, right? <laughs> I was random. Uh, this is the exact same game, but with a uh, a new coat of paint. It is oh. a Lovecraftian uh, version of that. Where gasp? Where it is a boat that is taken off from uh, the UK and going to the Americas, but on the way, it is attacked by. Dagon-esque Ooh. beings from the sea. Oh. And, Dagon, Esquire. Right. And so the object of the game is t- for everybody to work together to get the ship to its final destination of America before it's destroyed by the sea creatures. Mm. Uh, and of course, there is a chance, a strong chance, uh, that somebody in the group is working for the baddies. And, and I say strong chance because it's like, there is a traitor card, but there's only like one less chance for how many people. Like if it's you, me, and like Jeff, Kirsten, myself, and Barry and Deb. Uh, so there's five players. There would be six cards, and one of them would be a mm. traitor card. Okay. And everybody would get one, and there'd be one card down that nice. no one would get. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that no one's a traitor. That's beautiful for the paranoia, yes. Right. <laughs> but uh, chances of five out of six that one of you is a traitor. Mm-hmm. I like that I like that kind of approach, because the, the, the outside chance that no one is, it as opposed to, like say, Secret Hitler, where somebody is definitely, yes. that's, that's actually kind of cool, because that does put you in the zone of, well, well, it's entirely possible 
that it's there's no one, which which just really fucks with your thinking. Right. Right. Un, unprobable, but possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome, folks, to Geek Shock number 640. I am Master Torgo. It is Jeff. Commander K. And we're here to talk week and geek without half the crew. Yes. This is old school Geek Shock right here. This, this is yeah. this is Geek Shock Prime. Welcome to Geek Shock, <laughs> uh, where the shocks are keeping my heart beating. Uh, so uh, Deb and Barry are out of town. Yep. Um, yes. Uh, no Deb. No Deb. Don't don't yeah. turn us off. Right, don't right. don't hit stop. So it's half good, half bad. <laughs> uh, Matt is not here because Matt's going to Matt. Well, he's yeah. got work. Yeah. Of yeah. Course he does. He, uh, yeah. He specifically told me yesterday, he's like, there's a 99% chance I won't be there tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, it's well, kind of like playing Unfathomable. Me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like he was, he was holding, no, he was seriously holding out hope because there's, there was a very small chance he was going to be able to come. And he really wanted to, actually, he had something he wanted to talk about on the show this week. Oh. But, uh, oh, well. It's going to be me talking about it. Nah. So he, can, <laughs> he can just hear about it. That's right. Yeah, right. When, when he doesn't listen when to he the doesn't. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah, a, a classic, intimate geek shock. And there's, there's a lot of news that we had this week, so we got plenty to discuss. There we go. Uh, but, of course, let's, let's open it up. Gentlemen, what geeky things did you do this week? Uh, we'll start with you, Jeff. Because so, we missed last yeah, week. Yeah, I did miss last week. Uh, and interestingly, had stuff to talk about last week, and uh, you know, well, and, and, I saved and, it for this week. Yeah, now you double it up. Double Do it, it up. This is, yep. this is your show now. So um, I started watching on Paramount Plus a show called The Offer, which is based on Albert S. Ruddy's account of getting The Godfather made at Paramount. Oh, yeah, fascinating. Um, I am four episodes in out of ten. Uh, I believe only six are available right now because they're doing it on a weekly release schedule. And I got behind on it because I'd forgotten it had dropped. And then um, my Chromecast with Google TV runs like things like this suggested for you. And I'm like, oh, shit, I forgot that was in there. So the show stars Miles Teller as Albert S. Ruddy, who is the creator of Hogan's, well, co-creator of Hogan's Heroes and then moved into, uh, uh, he was a producer on that and then moved into producing at Paramount. Um, and was given the task of getting The Godfather made because at the time it was a huge best-selling novel, but none of the studios wanted to touch it, so they optioned it for rather cheap. In, and in, uh, is, do you, can you expand on that at all as to why the studios <sighs> didn't want to make Mario Puzo's masterpiece? Because Italian-Americans thought it put ah. them in a bad light. Um, it, it, it was. Uh, I mean, there's there's more details to it, but... Obviously, the mafia didn't want it made because oh, the, the 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 statement is like, well, the mafia doesn't exist. So why would you want to write a, a a movie about, or excuse me, write a book about something that doesn't exist and paint us all in a negative light? So that was that was a big part of it. And then obviously, having a movie made of this best-selling novel that they didn't want made was even <laughs> more complex. So. There's there's multiple layers to this series about all the different struggles that he's going through trying to get the Godfather made. I gotta say, you know, like, like I said, only four episodes in, and it is a ten episode limited series. I'm damn depressed with the performances. Uh, Miles Teller's Runny, uh, Ruddy, excuse me, uh, Matthew Good, who you might remember as Ozymandias from uh, the the Watchmen, 
does a ridiculously amazing performance as Robert Evans, who was the produ- uh, was the uh, the uh, CEO of Paramount at the time. Um, I know this because I have seen uh, enough interviews with Robert Evans from back in the day, as well as his own documentary, The Kid Stays in the Picture, uh, that his portrayal of Robert Evans is spot on. I mean, he's got the inflections down. He's got the movements down. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. And it's, it's not like, um, like some of the transformations you've seen, like with... Uh, 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 in Pam and Tommy, when they put the the makeup effects on to try to make them look more like their characters, he's just doing it with basically hairstyle uh, and costume, and then just acting. And I'm I'm oh, damn depressed no. with it. Uh, I uh, Professor Biggs put a little something on Facebook about that, and that was before I had actually sat down and watched it. And yeah, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. Uh, but you also have uh, names you recognize, like Dan Fogler is playing Francis Ford Coppola. Giovanni Rabisi plays Joe Colombo, who is uh, an Italian lieutenant uh, that is, ob- you know, pushing really hard to not get the movie made or to get the movie stopped. Rather, uh, Juno Temple plays uh, Betty McCart, who is uh, Albert Ruddy's uh, assistant, uh, and that's an interesting take on it because. As an assistant, even back in the 70s at Paramount, it's still pretty much an old boys club at that time. So the fact that she had as much power as she did being his assistant and getting things done is pretty impressive. And they do portray that a lot. Um, But uh, again, this is based on Ruddy's own personal account. So, you know, take everything with a grain of salt because... There have been other accounts of how the movie got made that one man's point contra- of view. contradict it. Yes, it's one man's point of view exactly. Uh, but you other you have other people in there like uh, Colin Hanks who plays Barry Lapidus, who was the Gulf Western um, accountant at the time and was really trying to rein them in on budget. Uh, and then I mean, like I said, the list goes on and on. But you have a pretty much all star cast. Um, but yeah, I'm. Uh, like I said, four episodes in, but I'm very impressed with it so far. I can't wait to see the the, the, the remaining episodes. I'm kind of fascinated this exists at all. Yeah. Mm. Just because how many movies are there about the making of a specific movie? Yeah. Mm. And being made by Paramount, too. And in some of the ways, it doesn't put Paramount in the best light in some of the, in the first couple episodes. So, uh, but yeah, um, I definitely recommend checking it out, especially if you have any interest in... Um, you know, filmmaking history. I mean, granted, it's a it's a dramatized version of that, um, but uh, yeah. And then, of course, a an AFI top one hundred film. You know, a, a behind the scenes of how that film got made. It's well, it, it it's and it's uh, we're in uh, the anniversary, right? Yeah, that was one of Pretty the things close, about yeah. the the slap. Yeah, because uh, following that was supposed to be Coppola with De Niro and Pacino to 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 like you know represent for The Godfather, right. and and that just had its that went by balls the cut off yep. by uh, everything else that happened. So, but yeah, so Paramount Plus the offer. Uh, the other thing I did was I watched Chippendale Rescue Rangers on Disney Plus. I, you know what? I, I haven't. I've seen a lot of buzz. Yes, about this, and mm-hmm. it has piqued my curiosity. I was, 
I went into it not expecting much, but I came out of it pleasantly surprised. Um, it is definitely geared towards a, an older audience. I'd say teens, 20s and above, uh, because they're definitely playing on the nostalgia level of people that do remember the the series when it first aired. It is really well written. It's a good blend of the nostalgia factor as well as bringing in elements of modern animation, cartoons, television series, and so forth. But it is a movie. Uh, apparently, it was originally supposed to be in theaters, and then oh. they made it a, a Disney Plus exclusive. So it's only available on Disney Plus. But uh, it stars Andy Samberg as uh, Dale and John Mulaney as Chip. Hmm. And then it rounds out the full all-star cast with uh, stars like Will Arnett, Eric Bana, uh, Dennis Haysbert, Keegan-Michael Key. I mean, the list oh. literally goes on and on. Uh, Tim Robinson in an uncredited role as Ugly Sonic, which is the oh he's playing Sonic the Sonic before they re uh, they went back and redid the animation for the first movie the the one that from the trailer when you that you might have seen in the theaters where everybody was like oh my Ooh. god you you can't you can't stop but stare at his teeth which is actually a uh, a, a key point in the movie but I won't say much more that's fine uh, wow. Seth that's- Rogen J K Simmons. Uh, I mean, Rachel Bloom, the list goes on and on. Is, is the movie all that meta? It's not all meta, but there's enough meta in it that it's it definitely pokes fun at itself. It is not meant to be a completely serious film. You don't... You know, um, what, Chip and Dale? I know, right? Really? Um, <laughs> but it's, it's not about the making of Chip and Dale Rescue Me? <laughs> it's very entertaining. Um, the stuff they had to go through to get that done. The accountant didn't want it to happen. No, cut yep, the budget. No, that, that, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, especially if you have Disney+, Plus, I highly recommend che- checking it out. Um, the performances are excellent. Um, there's there's a few times that, that just down the right made me laugh out loud. Uh, one specifically I'm thinking of, but I don't want to say because it is a spoiler for the film. Okay. Um, Absolutely. But uh, Yes, let's not spoil Chip and Dale. <laughs> I will say it, it has to do with the fact that some of the actors that are doing voice roles in this film have done voice work for other animated films. It's a Will Arnett that, thing, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's it's actually not it's actually not Will Arnett, oh, wow, but it okay. would have worked with him. But they play on the fact that this person has done multiple roles and that's okay. the key to the joke. Okay. Sounds pretty um, meta to me. That's yeah, exactly. So fun. I mean, like I said, it's a good mix of meta as well as trying to uh, run its own story. Sure. So if you um, over meta, yeah. then you're just gonna yeah. Uh, then you got to take Metamucil. How? How? It, I, I hate to interrupt uh, Jeff, but it just just as a as an intellectual thought, mm-hmm. how ubiquitous, how big in um, pop culture, maybe like Wizard of the Oz, the movie. Can mm-hmm. could you would you have to be to do something that was more or less completely meta mm-hmm. and still reach a wide audience, still not alienate. Mm. You know, some people who come in and they're just not getting the uh, all the references, and and they're like, ah, wah, wah, cry. I'm, be- I feel left out. I think uh, it's it's kind of hard. You real, I mean, that really has to have its tendrils into yeah. all sorts of uh, aspects of pop culture. Yeah, absolutely. That, but that I, is I, a it, tightrope walk. It's yeah. funny though, because I mean, on the subject of meta, you're talking about like the the Godfather thing, and yeah. I love movies about movies. I yeah. love movies oh, about movie making. Oh, you it's, would love Under the Rainbow. Um, actually, yeah, I remember that saturated. <laughs> 
uh, HBO. <laughs> yes, it, it did. It, for, that's how we all saw it. Yeah, right. yeah. That I remember Under the Rainbow, Bugsy Malone, uh, Beastmaster. So there were, you know, Beastmaster. That was uh, about the making of. Uh, <laughs> well, of Gone with the Wind, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. So I got off. Uh, I got off <laughs> tangential there. But uh, yeah, the uh, um, not Paper Moon. Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see Nickelodeon? The movie. Yeah, I know just the channel. That's the Nickelodeon is a movie about old, uh, early twenties Hollywood, oh, okay. getting started in that, and there's a whole bunch of '70s stars in that one, and it's about movie making there in the early days. Is it? it oh God, if I'm thinking the right one, John Ritter. Uh, was Burt Reynolds? No, uh, Ryan. Blah blah blah. God okay. Damn it, Ryan. <laughs> Ryan O'Neill. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and I think, because Paper Moon is kind of close to that, and I'm, I'm right now. I want to say Ryan and Tatum O'Neill, but that was that movie. I don't know. Anyway, thinking, Nickelodeon. Are you thinking Love Story? The... No, no. I'm thinking oh, about okay. it's 1920s. Early, oh, they're talking okay. about early yeah, yeah, yeah. making the early silence. Gotcha. Breaking in the movies and stuff, and uh, I pick up my phone, but it really isn't worth it. So anyway, yes, Jeff. Honestly, you know, it's funny you bring that up. It's like, it's amazing that movies got made in the 20s, 30s, 40s, considering mm. all the drama that goes on back behind the scenes oh, in a yeah. lot of those studios. Oh, yeah. oh, I mean, dude, dude, the, the, and you're not even getting into like the rampant drug use mm-hmm, or the, right. the, the constant covering up of, you know, things that are going on. All in, the crazy in the Hollywood land. And, Hollywoodland. Yeah, yeah. I loved Hollywoodland because yeah. it was just like, wow, this has got all the crazy, seamy, nutty, nuttiness that goes into oh, it. Yeah. Um, has there ever been, a, wasn't there something done about Edison? And like the fact that one of the reasons why Hollywood's in LA is because people wanted to get as far fucking away from Edison as possible? Uh, I don't know about Edison, specifically. Edison had started movies had yeah, started he, he movies. built a studio in and, new jersey right and he, uh, what i don't know if it was the the, the trope of edison st- stealing from everybody or he's working his copyright thing and trying to hedge out people but he was such a fucking pain in the ass i mean new york the seat of theater mm-hmm. broadway so you would expect that that's where movies would start but quite literally quite literally a lot of people were like Fuck this guy. We got to get as far from him as possible. Yeah, and, and they I, settled on L.A. I mean, I remember it ended up in LA. from film history books that you know the official was the official statements for a lot of the studios, even studios that were founded like in New York and the New York area, like the whole New England area. Yes, a lot of time, uh, some of them did state about getting away from Edison, but mm-hmm. but the official word was that part of the reason they chose California is because. The stability of the weather comparatively well, yes. to yes, you know, you, you can the Northeast. I mean, you yeah, know, no. I know productions today that shoot in New York. It's a nightmare sometimes where you're like you're on location, you're ready to go, and then the weather changes, right. and then you have to scrap Absolutely. it for the day. Absolutely, um, you don't get that much. And Plus, in LA, you can shoot in the summer yeah. or the winter, and you can shoot basically the same scene. Yeah, you know it's it. You're and not then gonna... the other part was that there was plenty of land to buy up relatively cheap to build sound stages on. Right. Whereas, especially in the New York area, 
it was limited amount of land even then, that you uh, could build sound stages on and super expensive and yes. even more so today oh of course so. yeah I, I I mean okay. There's, there's a lot there's of factors. a lot of lot of factors going in, but, there. but I remember watching a few yeah. film things talking about that, and then also they go into Europe uh, when uh, the European and the French people, the French uh, film scene was starting, and it would it would talk about like the rise and then the sudden crushing fall of things that yeah. the Nazis had a lot to do yeah. with affecting Europe's film because so many people fled Europe for America and then the Nazis itself taking over the way they took over the German film industry the whole thing was is incredibly fascinating I I do remember one aspect of the uh the anti-Edison movement was that you know he had built the industry up in that area you know he had like permanent sets that he would lease out to people but I think if I if I'm remembering correctly, and I'm sure Professor Biggs is correcting me as he as he hears this, um, I seem to remember something about how he set such unrealistic terms for usage of his studio yes. and his equipment, et cetera, et cetera, that it benefited him a great deal. Right. But the studios who were already quote unquote running slim profit margins. We're just not having it. You're reminding me, because I think that that was part of it. It's like his terms were damn near almost yes. like he had part stake yes. or ownership in a movie yes. that he was doing nothing but leasing his stuff out mm-hmm. to. Yep, exactly. And I think a lot of that was getting away from that, because I think he was using that control, too. Yeah, it's like, Edison, you have to use my equipment, yeah. you have to use my sound stages, right. I get X amount of this, and then yeah. you know, just, yeah. I remember, God, I got to remember what fucking video I watched. That talked about this, but it was it was really really it was really fascinating. So uh, yeah, yeah, uh, whatever movie Jack was watching, <laughs> yeah, Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic yeah. uh, Sonic uh, the, the Rescue Ranger, Chippendale Rescue Rangers on Disney Plus. Yeah, I recommend checking it out. So what was the uh, did, did they did they do a strip tease? Did the ch- sorry Chip Chip and Dale Chip and Dale's dancers. Oh, they reference wow. No, it, it's oh. it's he's not far off. I they do. It is meta. They they do actually <laughs> reference they the do? Chippendale dancers oh, in there. In fact, it's in the opening. They says when you think of the word, when you hear Chippendale, you probably think of. And then he talks about this guy that was a uh, uh, a construction worker or something mm. like that. You know, he's like. But then next, you would think about Chippendale, the long running uh, adult male, uh, you know, striptease group or whatever however he put it and it's funny that they bring that in there because later on dale who is kind of down on his luck is seen backstage (laughs) at one of these things getting ready to go out and perform and i'm just like i'm like wow that is that is so hilarious and a kid watching this is not going to understand what the fuck is going on right now that so, I, I want that. I want. Yeah, I want to see that scene cut into just Dale sitting in the, the you know, dressing he's, he's room. Got, yeah, he, that's what it is. <laughs> wearing got, a bow tie he, and it, nothing else. No, it's exactly what it is. He's wearing a. Like he's wearing a bow tie. Anyway, right? He's wearing a bow tie. He's got that um, robe slash smoking jacket that you a lot of times yeah. see actors wear backstage. Sure. And he's talking to the guys like, "Hey, so after this, you guys want to go out and you know." grab a drink or something, maybe some food, and they're like, oh, well, we have, like, other plans, like, without you, that kind of thing. <laughs> Although you made a good point, uh, uh, Todd. That'd be funny if uh, the Chippendale striptease was 
they're already pretty stripped. So just <laughs> right. stepping out on stage and doing a song and dance routine. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's just a doll duck cartoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that That is one of the jokes in there. Uh, uh, one of the characters says something to, to, to Chip. He's like, He's like, I'm going to do something so grand it's going to blow your pants off. He goes, I don't wear pants. He said, that's not something to be proud of. <laughs> so Not meta at all. Very yeah, not, there isn't meta. a lot of meta, meta in it. No, no, no meta at all. No, no. Uh, last thing I want to talk about is uh, last night I went to the fan uh, preview screening of Top Gun Maverick. Oh, wow. Were you like the only one there? I'm, no. I'm uh, just kidding. Theater was actually pretty packed. I was I'm, surprised. Uh, I, I know. Uh, <laughs> it's not why. It's not going to be that popular. Maple Leaf Matt and I went. Uh, <laughs> what? Yeah, Maple Leaf? Yep. His, he's, he's, wait. He, 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 those aren't Canadian Navy nope. fighters. What's and going he is, on? He's not a fan of Top Gun at all. I just figured, you know, maybe he wanted to, <laughs> to come. Uh, just with hang me. out with Jeff. Well, you know, his yeah. birthday was coming up. I figured Aww. I'd do yeah. something nice. Take for him, him to a movie. He's right. not going to care. Uh, exactly. The sequel to Roadhouse isn't coming out for a good long time. Yeah. Roadhouse. Oh my God, this film was really good. It was way better than I was anticipating. Oh. There's a solid story in there, mm-hmm. and pretty. I, I I hesitate to use the word, but. Oscar-worthy performances from some of the actors in Holy this. Holy uh, mackerel. Wow. Tom Cruise kills it. You've got Val Kilmer returning as Tom Iceman Kazansky. <laughs> Going back to tying into the offer that I talked about earlier, Miles Teller plays uh, oh, uh, yeah. Rooster Bradshaw, who is the son of Goose. And it, I, I saw a bit of a trailer, and it's mm-hmm. like, wow. Yeah. They, they, they do his mustache. Yeah. Just perfectly. Oh it, yeah! It almost looks like Anthony Edwards just being a little de-aged. It, wow. it, it's he yeah. Look, he it's it's fucking totally uncanny. looks like his son. It's totally it's, believably yeah. looks like his son. It's completely uncanny. In fact, there was a moment towards the end of the film when uh, Maverick and Rooster are interacting, and for like a split second there, I literally thought. I was watching the first Top Gun mm-hmm. and the interactions between Cruz and uh, uh, oh, I'm totally blanking Goose? out on his name now. Uh, that played Goose, um, Anthony Edwards. Edwards. Anthony Edwards, thank you. Uh, but yeah, it's it like fucking blew my mind. Uh, yeah, very effective. But anyway, uh, so it also has uh, Jennifer Connelly who's playing a love interest, and a lot of people were throwing up a, a fit because like, oh, why are they bringing that in? And it's like, well. The character she's playing is referenced in the first film. Mm, very uh, clever. Remember the uh, you know flybys of towers and one admiral's daughter, and remember when Ghost goes Penny Benjamin? Yeah, that's who she's playing in that this film. That is funny. So they brought it back around. Uh, John Hamm is in here. Uh, you've got a lot of younger actors who are playing new roles, like uh, Monica Barbaro, who's playing Phoenix, who is a female Top Gun graduate. Uh, you've got, uh, I can never remember this guy's name, so I had to look it up. Glenn Powell, who you've probably seen him in a thousand things, but he plays Hangman in this. And you'll recognize his face instantly when you see him. Right. So at first you think, oh, he's kind of the, the pseudo Iceman character. He's the, mm-hmm. you know, the conflict about, you know, he has a certain way of doing things where Maverick has, right. you know, the fly by the seat of the pants thing. You're dangerous. Um, yeah, exactly. What a wonderful! That's a that's a 1940s Hollywood marquee name right there, yep. starring Glenn Powell. Wow, oh, yeah, it's right there, boy. We I think we've got a theme for tonight. But I mean, Glenn Powell and Gomer's Heroes. <laughs> I, I need to see it again because I wanna I wanna 
absorb more of uh-huh. what wow. I was witnessing watching. There's the film, so much in this movie you need to see it twice. It does not rely as much on nostalgia as you would think a sequel would do, especially considering it's 36 years in the making. Talk about Peggy. Well, uh, yeah, you say that. Uh, you need to clarify because we got Peggy, we got Rooster, right? We got clear references to the there's Iceman's back, right? What's going I mean, on, Jeff? There, there's enough nostalgia threaded through a new original storyline mm-hmm. that it's going to attract an audience that was in love with the first film. Mm. However, I was really thinking hard about it last night, and. I feel like you don't necessarily need to have seen the first film to go to see this and enjoy this film. You'll mm-hmm. have a better understanding of a couple of the characters, but right. just a couple of them. Because for all intents and purposes, this is an entirely new movie. Yes, Maverick is the focus of the movie. He is the star. But they spend enough time establishing all these other characters and giving them important things to do. It's very much on the level of a team-up style of movie Mm -hmm. where, yes, you have one person who is the center focus because, frankly, it is a continuation of Maverick's story. Mm. But because it's an entirely new story and you have an entirely new mix of uh, characters that are involved in pushing this story forward, it's not entirely about making go, remember this thing that we did in the first film? Didn't you like that? Here's that again. Right. Uh, that's a that's a tightrope. Having said, yeah, exactly, exactly, and that's what I was talking about uh, with like with Chip and Dale walking that tightrope of, you know, in that case, meta and nostalgia versus driving a new story. Hmm. Maverick's doing the same thing, but not necessarily trying to be meta, trying to walk that tightrope between com- being completely a nostalgia fest. And giving you an entirely new, in many ways, more meaningful story. Because if you go back and look at the first Top Gun, there's not a lot of story there. No. It's really about character interaction. Yeah. This has that, and it's very important to the story. But you also have a story that's driving all of these characters to that end point. Well, so uh, yeah, I, I was, I was honestly, like I said, I was really surprised. Because I, I went in there going, you know, I'm probably going to like this. I'm seeing some of the critical reviews. A lot of the critics are liking this. And after exiting the theater, I was like, wow, that was even better than I thought it was going to be. Mm. So it is really, really good. In theaters starting this Thursday. So by the time that you hear this podcast, it'll be out in the theaters for and, you to go And see. no doubt a huge oh. swath of the Shock Monkey art army we'll have seen it by then mm, we'll see <laughs> but uh yeah it's definitely worth checking out even if you weren't a fan of the first top gun i mm-hmm. think you would probably go to this and enjoy it that's what you want to do and yeah it's uh it's uh now i want to see it because i just want to see how they uh, thread that needle yeah. yeah because they do a fine job yeah and uh in fact one of the interviews i watched with tom cruise this afternoon was like apparently paramount before the movie even hit the theaters wanted him to do a sequel like the test audience's reaction was so good that they were like, we're going to do a sequel. And he said no. And then throughout the last 30 years has repeatedly said no. Um, scripts that were presented to them, he said, they, he said they were basically utter garbage. And 
he said it wasn't until he started sitting down and thinking, well, what are the things that would bring me back to do a sequel? Started kind of jotting down notes. And then uh, the script writer that wrote this script um, saw some of those notes and then they put this together and they came up with a storyline that he said he felt like it was something that he owed to the fans, but he said he wasn't going to do it unless it was not just a good sequel, but a good film on its own. Right. So, and that's what it felt like to me watching this film. Hmm. A, it was a good film that could stand on its own and not necessarily be um, tied down to the point where you would need to have seen the first film in order to... It will be helpful to see the first film to get some of the references in there, but I don't think it's necessary. Just like Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. Which, well, hey. which I did get to see again because it's on HBO right now. Oh, Is it shit. finally there? Yeah, it's Good, on. I can finally watch uh, it for the first time. Yeah, you really. haven't seen it yet? No, yeah, wait I, for it to go to the street. I haven't seen Damn, it either. that movie. That movie, I, I, I've watched it now three times. And wow. Oof. It's just, it's such a good film. I don't, it's like one of those, there's like, because of the amount of time between the original and the sequel, and or I should say this, actually even the amount of time between Ghostbusters 2 and this movie, it has no business being as good as it is. And it's Ghostbusters Afterlife is a fantastic sequel. So anyway, that's all I got. <laughs> I know that was a lot, but no, that's beautiful. That's, I, that's all I got. <laughs> uh, I, I've been working so much. I haven't been able to do much. Uh, I have been working on a commission for the microscope. Okay. Uh, he hired me to repaint a hero click. Okay, uh, but not one, not like the rigid, little hero clicks. Mm-hmm. Although there's a couple of them I do have to touch up to make it match. One of the monster the, ones. Hero clicks released Starro the Conqueror. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. Right. And they the one they released as expected with Hero Clicks DC is just like the one in the comic book. Sure, right. Uh, he uh, Microscope wants me to recreate. The one from the movie. Oh, the, 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 different color, the different color palette they used for the right. movie. Yes. Um, nice. and, and originally, I was just going to do a color repaint on it. Just reprime it and then just change the colors and say done. But it just didn't feel right because the designs are very different. Yeah, because I've seen the pictures of your current progress. And now I have some context. I'm like, oh... That's a hell of a job. <laughs> yeah, so because the, the original Starro has this little eye, yeah. and, and of course the movie Starro has this... Giant. It is an eye. Yeah. It's a big eye with starfish arms. Yes. And so I I started doing some conversion. I don't usually do conversion with stuff, and it was something I kind of insisted. I'm like, do you mind if I do some sculpting on this? And he thankfully said, yeah, go ahead, take the chance. I trust you. Well, that's always a good thing. Yes, for yes. Artist. Um, we say that all the time to you, Tom. <laughs> oh, and nor should you. And so I recreated a large eye, taking some epoxy putty, and just I took half a ping pong ball and, and sheared it down to create the eye itself. Whoa. And then I covered it up with epoxy to. So you, you didn't do like teeny tiny no. changes. No, it, it's, it's a massive change. <laughs> Well, the the listeners won't be able to see this, but for you, Kirsten, yes. that's the difference in the eye of that's the original. That's a tiny eye. Yeah, versus the, the movie version. So. I, I think uh, Starro would have eye envy with Shuma Gorath because <laughs> that's a tiny eye. It's a tiny eye. You don't want that little eye staring at no. you. Oh, you. Are you kidding me? No, no. It's, it's like little hands. You just don't want it. <laughs> Carnies. 
so anyway, I, I'm nearly done. Wow. Um, I, I've done. I've it took forever to highlight all the little suckers. There's like, there's, like, there's a few hundred suckers, and I highlighted every single one of them. Wow. Uh, but but now comes comes the part where uh, it tests my metal. It is now Ooh. time to approach the eye, and I'm going to try to recreate that eye for the movie as best I can. I've never done anything like it before. Mm. I'm curious as to how this is going to turn All out. All righty. Me too. But uh, yeah. so I mean, I'm excited to it. But I've also made the decision that after I'm done with this project, and it, and it's not because I haven't enjoyed it. I've loved this project. I'm going to shut down commissions for a while. Whoa. Yeah. Are you backlogged or just you uh, not, need a break? It's not even backlogged. Uh, I it's it's two parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think I need a break. Uh, I've been doing constant commissions now for over a year. Uh, like there's always been something on my table. There's there's never been a time in between. And so I think it's time for me to concentrate on some of my own things for a little bit. Oh. I've, I've gotten some Marvel Crisis Protocol miniatures that I would love to get down and paint on. Goodness. Just because I love the Marvel characters and painting those just sounds like a, just a fun thing. And now that Matt is kind of working on his army mm. and Barry's potential to eventually work on his army... I think I need to start returning and adding to my troops to be ready uh, five years from now when they both are ready to go. Mm-hmm. So, so I've already started working on my uh, one of my Death Guard commanders. So he's three quarters finished, and of course I'm still going to do the miniature painting for the Kofi members. So that's still going to happen going forward. So for a little while, the only way you'll be able to get a painted mini from me is through the Kofi. So there is that. Uh, but eventually I'll open up the commissions once again. But I think when I'm done with the Starro figure, I just want to paint some of my own stuff for a little bit. Jeez. And uh, my, my wife bought a uh, one of those Ikea lighted display cabinets uh, for oh, my minis. So God. I got to fill it up. She spoils you, she that does. woman. She really does. What the, what, she's just going to create a monster. She already has. Oh, okay. But then, then again, arguably happened prior. Well, I was going to say she monsterfied the monster. Yeah. Double oh double monster. Yeah. Monster squared. Unfathomable. Mm. Monster squared. Monster squared. I like it. That'd be a good uh, Todd uh, autobiography. Or biography, <laughs> at least. Curse <laughs> yeah. what'd you do? Um, I didn't do a lot because uh, I've been setting up a lot of, dealing with a lot of outside real life uh, nonsense. I'm getting ready to, to help save democracy in, uh, you're a here hero. In, in Nevada. So, yeah. I'll be working the Nevada early primary elections, and it's just, it's going to be an intense two weeks, probably 12-hour days. I may get a day off, um, and uh, that's going to be kind of crazy. Sitting in a hot tent around barely clothed, sweaty people, because it's basically summertime temperatures here in Vegas. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We're up at uh, Nellis Nellis Crossing, Nellis and Charleston. Oh, wow. Way up there. Yeah. Wow. It's not too bad, actually, by car. I actually get there in 15 minutes. And that was one of the things that was killing me because I was like, until I realized specifically where it was, I'm like, I'm probably going to spend like $200 in gas just working this job. (laughs) Uh, It won't be that bad. And it also depends on what time of day because that area can be a traffic nightmare if mm -hmm. you're there 
in the afternoon. Right. And but early enough in the morning and late enough yeah. in the evening. And I won't be, be right. there in the afternoon. I'll already be there. Yes, exactly. So, so we'll be working that. It'll be interesting. Uh, everyone have a drink because uh, uh, Star Trek The Experience, uh, oh. the, the guy who brought me into it was Russell Giles. I worked with Russell. We uh, worked with Russell uh, towards the end of Star Trek's time. He came in when Borg Invasion came in and then kind of rose up in management. Uh, and he called me in on this. So well, it's interesting already seeing how things, uh, how things work. Um, Peek behind like the that. curtain stuff, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So that's been actually kind of cool. Are you the guy um, that they, that adds the votes at the end with your drive the right. white van? That's right. Yeah. Yes. I stuffed the ballot boxes. Actually, it's kind of funny <laughs> looking at all that because uh, all the precautions that, uh, that are taken, um, this is electronic voting. And so there are flash drives in each little voting machine. And one of the jobs uh, that I won't be doing, it'll actually be Russell and our team leader, the actual supervisor of this uh, station. They actually collect the uh, flash drives under witnessing. They get sealed in a box with two different numbered seals, which is cataloged and signed off on. And then they together in one car drive to the election board uh, warehouse to drop off the flash drives which will be um, I believe the votes are tabulated and then uh, the drives are cleared for the next day I don't know if they do a, a flash drive for each individual day so we of course have the paper scroll that records all the voting as well but it's actually very, you know, the provisional ballots set up, we have these sealed cans with slits in them, and those get taken over to the warehouse every night and everything like that. So there's a number of redundancies that go into uh, taking care of that kind of thing. Uh, these, these people actually all take it very seriously. So, in fact, one of, uh, during training, somebody asked something about, what if we get, what if we get you know, any crap about, uh, you know, the machines are Dominion. So, uh, you know, what, 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 what uh, how, how do I know, how do I know if I, <laughs> how do I know if I get to, if my vote's being counted and it's just like, it's just like, uh, the response is, you know, don't believe the hype. This, we're, this is secure and everything I'm seeing, everybody takes it very seriously. So, so yeah. it's actually, it's very interesting seeing it. Yeah. And the, the paper backup on the machines is important too, yes. because there's, you're never going to have, or I should say, the odds of you having an uncounted vote for right. some kind of a technical malfunction mm -hmm. are very low. And all the provisional ballot things. We've yeah. got uh, provisional ballots for people who can't prove residents, who uh, can't prove they have a certain amount of evidence as to who they are, but they can't hit all our criteria, and so that's where the provisional ballot comes in and... And then uh, they get um, a printout notice with a little pamphlet that talks about what they have to do in the next five days or week or whatever to uh, make sure their ballot is counted in terms of establishing residency, getting that into the election thing. I was looking at this and it's like, this is really illuminating because I was thinking, uh, I, I occasionally think about things like national service program, right? You know, we, uh, most people talk about conscription. You know, if, if you're doing something like that, you go into the army for like two years, one year, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, what if we what if we broaden the concept of national service so that it was a variety of things? I mean, yeah, you're wonderful. You could go into the army. 
right? That's one of your options, but you could also go into this kind of service, that kind of service. And I think maybe working local elections, maybe working some kind of elections thing, some kind of civic thing like that would actually be an interesting, an interesting way to go in terms of uh, people getting an opportunity to actually, young people getting an opportunity to see how things actually work. Yeah. And I wonder if uh, that would actually maybe even uh, stimulate and interest young people in the voting process and actually being more involved than they already are. It would, and that's why it would never happen. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, but it, it, I was just looking at that because I'm like, this, this is, you know, it, uh, my paychecks will come from the county board. The, the 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 board of elections uh, it's essentially a county project it's essentially government work and and if we were to look at something like national service as a government thing wherever you're going a hospital or uh, you know or, or or the armed forces or something like this i think would be very actually very very interesting but it was just it's just something i mull about and i was thinking about that cuz i'm looking there were there were actually two people there who were younger than me? They were way young. These these kids look like they were in their twenties, and they're actually they're actually team leaders. They're actually going to be functioning and running a site. Uh, almost all the others there were women, and they were all older than me. And they have been doing it. They have been doing this for a decade, two decades. They'll sit there and, oh, that's a lovely change. I remember in 2014, during the midterms, when we make a burka durka dick and, you know, and you're just like, and here I am. This I've never done any of this before. So it's very interesting. So, yeah, yeah I mean, there's, it's interesting. I, my, my youngest sister, her husband has a background in history. He was going to be a history professor, so he took a lot of classes about history. So he's been very good about teaching his daughter's about history and so forth and one of the things was to kind of demonstrate to them the importance of elections because their oldest daughter is 10 but she's already starting to understand the importance of Mm -hmm. the voting process and why it's important to be involved and i was sitting there thinking about it because and since you brought up voting is i wish my parents had been like that where they got me or at least educated me to the point where I, I would realize how important it is to actually get out there and exercise your right to vote because I didn't really grasp the concept and why it was important to vote in every election until mm-hmm. I was in my 30s. Right. Because, I mean, I voted sporadically from the time I was 18, probably till late 20s. Yeah. Mostly it was just in the uh, the presidential elections. Not until I settled here in Vegas did I start voting in midterms, yeah. in, in off elections. Yeah. I was I would, did the presidential. I think the one time I didn't was I had a whole bunch of problems uh, getting registered and everything in Chicago. And, and it was going to be Dukakis and Bush. So, yeah. you know, why bother? <laughs> that terrible, terrible uh, attitude. But <clears throat> I think... And I'm not even sure if I missed that one. But, but yeah, and my parents always voted. It was really funny. They loathed, loathed the Republicans. Although it's hilarious because my hot button issue, as people who follow me on Facebook would know, is abortion. Mm-hmm. And my parents were rabidly anti-abortion. <laughs> really? Even though they never voted Republican. 
that was not enough of an issue to get them to go over and vote Republican. And I think that that had some kind of effect on me because even though uh, we differ on that particular issue, they always voted on yeah. the general. They always vote every four years. They voted in the presidential election. And so, uh, you know, I, the first time I voted, we were overseas. I cast an overseas ballot at the U.S. Embassy. So it was, uh, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, th- I think a lot of that does kind of get passed down the line, I would say. Yeah. I mean, definitely for me, it was after graduating college, just because it was like, okay, I get it now. You know, I've had mm. enough exposure to, you know, why it's important who you elect not just because of that person and, you know, them representing your interests, but the broader picture of everything, like Supreme Court nominations. And looking uh, at the fact that just participating, right? Yeah. uh, It seems to me that a lot of politicians, man, when we have those soft years where it's really low turnout, and America has low turnout for a democracy anyway. We have one of the lowest turnouts turnouts in America. industrialized democracies but and also the importance of who would be nominated to unelected positions like cabinet positions yes secretaries of this that and the other thing and if there you know if if there's a soft cycle yeah not a lot of people participating i think that the politicians kind of get get a little ah well there's more we can get away with here yeah people are kind of but you get more people involved and it it makes them at least it makes them sit up and notice. I mean, that maybe they should stick to their. There, there's still their, stuff that we their got campaign going on, promises, you know. and our our system is not. You know, I mean, we we definitely got our issues, and we're fighting. I think for the life of our system right now, yeah. in the past couple cycles, but still, it's uh, when more people participate. It's, yeah, and also just just because I'm a partisan snob, it it's a fact that when more people vote the uh, the progressive side the liberal side tends to do better it's it's well known you suppress the voting the uh the other side tends to actually well, prevail yeah. yeah i mean it the the stats are unquestionable there's nearly a third of the population that just does not vote yes so yes even with our ridiculously historic turnout mm-hmm. uh in 2016 yeah it was still it was still more people who didn't vote than did. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm doing yeah. that. Um, the closest I came to a geeky thing is uh, on my Discord, I discovered that there is, there finally, finally is a Blu-ray of uh, Extreme Prejudice, an action movie from the 1980s. Um, it's a Walter Hill joint. Oh. And uh, it's one of his lesser movies. It's not fantastic. It's, uh, you know, Warriors is better. 48 Hours is better. But it's his ode to the Wild Bunch. So it's kind of like a modern Western. Nick Nolte plays a Texas Ranger. And you've got all sorts of 80s names in there. Uh, Michael Ironsides is in there. Uh, Northwestern alum uh, Clancy Brown is in there. Um, We've got... uh, Maria Conchita Alonso in there. Powers oh. Booth is the antagonist. <laughs> I so, love Powers Booth yeah. as an antagonist. <laughs> and it, oh, yeah. And he, he Powers Booths it 
up. Um, he, he, he isn't yeah. quite Curly Bill. Okay. He isn't quite Curly Bill, but he's he's there. And part of it is his character uh, kind of gets unhinged. So there's there's back there's a little background to it, but he he really does powers booth it up. It really does get wacky. Uh, it's so hard to describe his villain style because it's borderline scene chewing. Yeah. It's not so much that he's dominating everything and just destroying everything around him, but it's damn near close. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody that's seen a movie with Powers Booth as an antagonist knows yeah. that he's got a very distinct delivery style. I yeah. mean, you know, you're you're you I, you're referencing um, uh, Tombstone. Tombstone there, yeah. and of course, and uh, he's. Because even there's some scenes where he's playing it real subtle, mm-hmm. doing that kind of whis- well, he, that whisper thing, thing and it's still full on powers. Tomb, in Tombstone, yeah, he's got scenes where Val Kilmer and Michael Bain uh-huh. are chewing it, and, and so and, and he, he's the more subtle one, <laughs> but it's still so powers yeah. booth. He's just like, right. we'll see y'all later, or uh, <laughs> or Deadwood. Oh yeah, Deadwood. I, you know, I know. I, I have to admit, I still have not seen Deadwood. Wow. I know you guys have lauded it, Todd. You just repeatedly. You, you just give him shit. But this is this Jeff. is my Todd moment to say I have not seen Deadwood. How could you have not seen Deadwood? I just <laughs> honestly, I forget about it. I I always think, well, you know, the series is complete. I should go back and watch mm-hmm. it. Just two it's seasons. It's on HBO Max. Just two seasons. And then, ooh, look at this shiny new thing. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, man. Oh man! I mean, Dead Todd, Dead... you of all people should understand why I have not seen. Deadwood. Yeah, really. You di- constantly distracted by other things. <laughs> well, I, be... I'm still amazed that you made it through Deadwood because I remember when you were watching it actively. I didn't. I made it through five episodes and I never finished. Oh, what the language? You couldn't take all that because I remember you bought the DVDs and you were telling me how good that series was. It was really and good for like... those first five episodes. And but then the, it wasn't. Then, or you? But shiny thing. Oh, yeah. And you're gonna, and you were about to give me shit about it. I absolutely was. The the, the spotlight was away from me for like seven <laughs> seconds. It was That's wonderful. Right. Move it from time. Yeah, it it's funny because in Deadwood he is he is very quiet, but yeah. he's still Powers Booth. Yeah. He's still boothing it, you know. Uh, but he's very very quiet. It, it, boothing it. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. He's Powers Boothing it. It so it's it's a fun. It's basically a modern uh, Rip Torn. Rip Torn. Yeah. Another 80s face that everyone will recognize, but nobody knows his name, William Forsyth. Oh, oh yeah. Right. He's a great character actor. He's amazing all, character all actor. over the place. Uh, been doing things forever. Uh, and he's in there, and he's just an over-the-top kind of crazy character. So it's sort of like an ode to the Western. It's like with um, Fred Ward. Fred Ward, like everybody knows who he is, but nobody knows his name. Right. Because he's been in so many right. things. So. It was so and, sad to lose him, too. Yeah. And Forsyth is definite. Forsyth is such the, uh, oh, that guy who was yep. in that thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun movie. Uh, it's not, you know, I don't know, I'd call it Warriors level, uh, 48 hours level. Another Nick Nolte joint uh, with uh, Walter Hill. Um, but it's, uh, it's still, it's so funny, too, because you're talking, uh, Jeff, about how big powers booth is and it's like i was watching this uh and extreme prejudice is like one of the few movies where nick nolte does not look like the biggest guy on screen yeah 
which he usually does. I mean, I, I always I love watching Forty Eight Hours because his forty five automatic and uh, that he uses through most of the movie looks looks stupid tiny in right. his Nick Nolte hands. <laughs> it's just he's such a big bastard. But in Extreme Prejudice, uh, Powers Booth actually makes him look a little smaller. Mm. It's funny. And I never thought of Booth as being physically like that yeah. that, that big. So I think a lot of it is the actor presence. And I was going to say, because he always plays big. Like it, yes. He plays like he's larger than he actually is. Huge. So you just imagine that yes. he's this... This giant figure. dominates any room that he mm-hmm. would walk into. Blah blah blah. So. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, it it is nevertheless a good Walter Hill movie, and uh, I haven't watched that in a long time. I'm gonna need to see that again. Yeah, well, dude, it was so funny because for the longest time they had a shit DVD. I mean, shit, right? A sucky transfer, pan and scan. Um, oh, wow. I I bought. I actually rented the, um, they had it cheap for, you know, own the digital on Amazon, and I bought it to show everyone have a drink, Vernon, and it opened, it opened with the shitty, the pan and scan beginning, and I'm like, motherless. They just transferred that to digital? Dude, yes, it was very gross. So somebody said, yeah, I just got my Blu-ray remastered. And I'm like, get the, you're not talking about the crap they've had. And he's like, no, no, it's finally out. And I'm like, shit, because originally, the only way I could find it, there was a store in Japan that had the Japanese Extreme Prejudice, which was a good, which was remastered and and original aspect and all that. So Blu-ray America uh, Japan, same region, you could buy a Japanese Blu-ray and then select um, English audio and you'd mm. get your movie. But the problem there, of course, was that it was re- exuberantly expensive. I couldn't even justify stimulus money on it. So I was just like, oh, this is too bad. But th- on top of everything else, 11 bucks oh, on wow. Amazon. I was nice. just like, yes. And I was like, holy shit, I, I have 11 bucks I can throw on this. So I will. So that was amazing. That really was disappointing, like the first few years of DVD, where <laughs> sometimes they would throw just laser disc transfers on right. there, but they weren't selective about it. They would do, like you said, they would do the pan and scan. Yes. And you're just like, oh a, my God, this is so goddamn annoying. Your DVD, why are you doing this pan and scan shit? This is supposed to be the format for people who know better. Yeah. <laughs> what and, is the fucking deal here, folks? Oh, I also watched Horror Express, ah. a uh, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing joint oh, okay. uh, about a horror, um, a terrifying entity on a train going through uh, Siberia. Uh, uh, Telly Savalas has a memorable uh, role as a Cossack uh, captain who, uh, at one point, pops in, and uh, that was a, that was a fun that was a fun actual cutesy movie i enjoyed a nice little how scene chewy was telly savalas in that he was not really as 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 uh telly savalasing it uh-huh. as you would think he still was big <laughs> right right but he's got he's got christopher lee who is playing very restrained and uh and a few others like that but um and it's actually interesting him showing up too because this is a hammer horror right or it comes across as a horror joint it's actually sure. a foreign some Italian dude or something doing it. Um, but uh, uh, he's there, 
and it's actually kind of interesting. It's a funny bit. Um, at one point, somebody was talking to Cushing and Lee's characters, and he's like, well, that, that could be, anyone could be the monster. It could be one of you two. And, <laughs> and Cushing's like, monster? But we're British. <laughs> wow. Very funny. That's nice. So, so yeah, it was a, that was an interesting, and it was funny because that one I had to look around for a remastered, because the first thing I found, I was just like, oh, cool, hit play, and uh, it comes right up looking like shit. And I'm like, oh, great. And so I had to dig around. And then it was really funny because I found the remastered, put it up, and it was totally different. Wow, what a difference. That was the title again? Horror Express. So, good, clean fun. And uh, Extreme Prejudice. I think it's time to express some horror and do some news you don't get to shill out. Wait a minute, there's no Deb here. What are you doing taking over her bit? Someone's someone's gotta do it. Damn. Look at look at what happens, folks. You're gone. You're gone for one day. One day is all it takes, and Todd moves in. All all I know is someone volunteered to take some of the stuff off the show off my shoulders and ran away immediately. That's all I know. Yeah. Well that shows what you do. I'll take something off your shoulders. Will you? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what. What do you want me to do? <laughs> you can paint some minis. There you go. You'll get a nice monochromatic... Base coat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just dip it in the base coat. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Blow this it. Like, just, just pops off the, ca- the, the pa- paint can with the base coat yeah. from, the, from the hardware store, dips yeah. it and goes, here you go, I Todd. don't even use tweezers. I'm just <laughs> holding it with my fingers. <laughs> this month Shit. we're giving away a ninja. <laughs> Next month, we're giving away a ninja. Uh, month after that, Invisible Woman. <laughs> News don't give a shit about. Uh, Seth Green claims that some of his NFT apes were stolen from him using a phishing scam. I heard about this. <laughs> uh, one ape in particular was taken and then sold to another user, which is bad news for him because Green planned and created a TV show starring the digital ape NFT. Oh, it, it gets better, Kirsten. Oh, man. Uh, now that he no longer owns it or the rights to it, uh, that TV show is in flux. Uh, on Twitter, Green broke the news of his stolen and resold NFT assets. Uh, the scammer grabbed a bored ape, two mutant apes, and a doodle. The assets were ripped from Green's wallet after he accidentally interacted with a scam site. The show is planned to star Bored Ape number 8,398, who Green has named Fred as a bartender. According to a legal expert, 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 interviewed by BuzzFeed, the current owner and holder of the ape, known as Fred, could cause a lot of trouble for the actor because they now own the commercial usage rights for the artwork attached to that NFT. Uh, Some of this, of course, is speculation, as NFTs are relatively new, and the courts, like many others out there, are still trying to figure out just what they are and how they work. Yeah, it's funny funny that this is just like, he doesn't have it anymore. Well, wait a minute. It was (laughs) stolen. Yeah. That doesn't doesn't that mean he has some recourse? Um, <laughs> no, yeah. because blockchain. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating because there was I actually just saw um, a, a lawyer talking about this that basically, even though it was a stolen asset, he can't proceed with any production on his project because the person who currently owns it has all the copyright uh, rights 
But there is a loophole in the law that says that if you are unaware that something is stolen when you purchase it, you're you're free and clear of any kind of wrongdoing if you proceed to use it for copyrighted material. However, the way that blockchain works, it's highly unlikely that this person didn't realize when they bought it that they were buying stolen property. Right. So now they're trying to figure out what legal recourse they have because the person doesn't want to sell it back to Seth Green. <laughs> I'm sure he's got the rest of this in the story. It's 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 ridiculous. Now there's a lot of NFT projects that are granting owners rights to commercially adapt and profit uh, from it. The thing that they kind of own. Bored Ape Yacht Club, where Seth Green brought, bought up Fred, was one of the large-scale NFT projects to enact such rights usages to owners. So it seems that if Green wants to keep making his NFT TV show, he'll need to regain ownership and control of his stolen Fred. And Green appears to know this, as he has spent the last few weeks since the scam happened, uh, tweeting to the ape's current owner, that's uh, Darkwing84. Um <laughs> It's, it's not known yet if the user knew the ape was stolen, but as Jeff said, chances uh, are. And oh I God. guess like uh, like right before we started uh, getting together to do the show here, I read the thing that they they did finally get a response from this guy, this Darkwing A4, and says he has no intentions of returning any of the copyright uh Ownership, or any no, of the ownership rights to, no, to Seth Green. No, he finally found an NFT that's worth something. Yeah. That to somebody. Funny. <laughs> but supposedly behind the scenes, Seth Green has offered him, you know, money for the thing mm-hmm. and like tried to buy it back. And he's a, even though it's stolen property, he's technically not, shouldn't <laughs> have to because it's stolen property. But. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. That, that, uh, there's no centralized regulation body on the whole thing, so yeah. there's no recourse. And also because blockchain is secure, nobody can just go in and look at it and say, oh, well, here it is right here. Only the person that has the current ownership can go back and look at the the chain of ownership in the blockchain. It's fucking ridiculous. So, yeah. So that's the other reason why they can't. he can't just say, hey, it's stolen property, I want it back, and then get the authorities involved because the authorities can't look at it to say, oh, yeah, well, here's where it was clearly right. stolen. right. And now that NFT values are starting to fall apart, it's obvious that the last nail in the coffin is here because uh, GameStop announced they're getting an NFT, so we know it's over. Yep. Oh, wow. Goodness. Cryptocurrency Goodness. and NFTs. I wonder how many of our anarcho-capitalist uh, friends have been taken, and we they, they're, just, they're just quietly not saying anything about how I they've think been it was, taken. I think it was Cracked had a really good uh, YouTube video about cryptocurrency and nfts and how they're basically the uh the penny stocks of the current Mm -hmm. generation because they're wildly unregulated uh they're completely volatile and they're really based on nothing except for people's perceived value of what they Mm. are actually worth tulips and it's all these people that that convinced all the people it's all these people with money that have convinced all these people with little to no money that they were worth something. And now the people with the money are trying to cash out and people are scrambling. Oh, I can buy this because they're selling this off, not realizing that it's not worth anything. There's a reason why there's a sell-off. Yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) News don't give a shit about 
Uh, Ryan Gosling is currently in talks to star in the film adaptation of The Fall Guy, based on the 80s TV series of the same Uh, name. Wow. The original series, which ran from 1981 to 1986, was created by Glenn A. Larson and starred Lee Majors as a Hollywood stuntman. To make ends meet, he has a side hustle as a bounty hunter. The Fall Guy is set to shoot in Australia and is partly set in a film studio, apparently. Uh, back in 2013, The Fall Guy was in development with McGee directing and Dwayne Johnson attached ah, to star. <clears throat> Jeff, Jeff perked up. <laughs> I remember when we announced that on the show because I remember Paul getting so excited because Paul is a big Fall Guy fan. Yeah. It's funny because I, I have such split thoughts on this as far as like, it's a Glenn A. Larson project, so it seems like something I should really, really enjoy. But I remember when I was watching The Fall Guy as a kid, I liked some of the episodes. I didn't really like that many of them. And now as an adult, I look back on it, and it's like, I love Lee Majors, but man, this yeah. is a terrible show. Yeah, I'll take it's a $6 million man. Horrible. I mean, any, any day of the week. It's it's an all, it's it's so funny how it's always on the Universal lot, obviously. But it's always like the stunt that he's doing is in a universal picture. So it's (laughs) him doing whatever it is as his day job and then suddenly splitting off to go do the bounty hunting. Mm -hmm. Or using Hollywood magic to trick a bounty into revealing themselves and then going, surprise! It was was like a low-budget attempt at doing like an Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. Where it's like they do the masks and everything, and then the reveal do the mask pull off and go, ha ha, I caught you. <laughs> uh, I say it just like that too in that show. Yeah, ha, I caught you. <laughs> I'd have gotten away. I'm with the it. fall guy. If it hadn't have been for that fall guy. <laughs> <laughs> News don't give a shit about uh, TikTok and parent company ByteDance plans to add video games to the video sharing service. It's reported that in Vietnam, users have had access to games for some time now, as the app is using its younger, tech-savvy audience there as a test market. Uh, TikTok plans to roll out games to more parts of Southeast Asia later this year. Technically speaking, TikTok has featured a few small games in the past, including a game from Zynga called uh, Disco Loco 3D. But this upcoming expansion from the platform's gaming capabilities will draw games from ByteDance's already large library. Meanwhile, a different subsidiary of that company recently announced Marvel Snap, a free-to-play card game from the creators of Hearthstone. So perhaps there's a future in which these types of, well, kind of bigger, more advanced mobile games become widely playable through TikTok itself. Uh, TikTok's games will be reportedly feature ads. Uh, ByteDance will pocket a percentage of the profits, with the rest going to the developers. And TikTok is just the latest example of non-gaming company trying to Get some games into an already popular app and service. Like Netflix has recently begun to add games to its app as part of a larger push into gaming. So, hmm. gaming. Mm-hmm. If you're into TikTok, expect little games with your little shows. Uh, I uh, was watching a fail video. It was really funny because they were trying to set up some uh, some father, you know, older guy for a prank. And I don't even know what the prank was because it is this the swinging water bottle? No. Okay. <laughs> but this is it's uh, the the mother was 
faking like she was choking or something and the daughter's recording and like dad do something and he's like what and and he's like clearly suspicious and at one point as he's getting up to help the mother he's he turns to the daughter turns to the camera essentially he's like this better not be one of those goddamn tic tacs (laughs) (laughs) that's the moment right there it just i love that now this better not be one of those goddamn tic tacs (laughs) We can geek. Yay! Uh-huh. Oh, did we? We didn't really groan or anything on the on the news. You don't give a shit about. No. Kind of groaned about Deb not doing it. Okay. It's, is that gonna is that gonna be enough for you? Are you gonna be able to work with that? It's like I, death and taxes. It was inevitable. I work with what you give me. Frankly, it's, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I remember the last girlfriend who said that to me. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> The quality assurance staff at Raven Software Studio voted to unionize Monday, becoming nice. the first union at a big studio in the U.S. The successful vote comes with a with talk of labor organizing pickup across the gaming industry as developers call for better pay, job security, and corporate accountability. Under the Game Workers Alliance, or GWA, the group is now legally recognized by the National Labor Relations Board and can proceed to negotiate its first contact with Activision Blizzard to secure better pay and other improved working conditions. Uh, Best-selling franchises like Call of Duty are notorious pressure cookers for developers, and developers in QA often bear the brunt of the project and company's shortcomings. Quote, Activision Blizzard worked tirelessly to undermine our efforts to establish our union, but we persevered. They really did. Members of GWA said in a statement, Now that we've won our election, it's our duty to protect these foundational values of which our union stands, unquote. Uh, Last December, over 60 employees at Raven Software walked off the job to protest cuts that saw some of their contract QA staff laid off rather than being converted to full-time. But facing pressure from the QA staff's historic union push, Activision Blizzard later voluntarily pledged to convert all remaining QA employees across the company to full-time and boost their minimum pay to $20 an hour. The unionizing workers were the only ones excluded from the pay bump. Uh, (laughs) Now they will get to negotiate their own. In recent months, Activision has also faced several labor complaints over its infringement of workers' rights and lost there as well. Uh, The NLRB announced Monday that its Los Angeles regional office found merit in a December complaint alleging that the company had spied on and threatened employees for discussing work conditions with one another and that its social media policy was overly restrictive. Mm. The Raven Workers' successful union drive comes on the heels of indie studio Vodio Games becoming the first of its kind to unionize in North America last year, and contract staff at BioWare announcing a union drive last month. This movement, which comes alongside explosions in union activity at Starbucks, Amazon, and Apple, has even spurred questions at places like Nintendo of America. Hmm. Good on you, Raven QA people. Solidarity. Yeah, it's... uh... I, yeah, and that was one of the speculations as to why um, Bobby Kotick and the, the board at Activision were pushing hard to find a, a buyer because that was supposedly a way to, to quash the, uh, um, the unionization efforts, the organization efforts that were going on. But, I mean, it was, it was getting ridiculous. I mean, it, it, these, these are workers that are already abused as it is. And they're getting threatening emails, and they're getting 
confrontations from, you know, other higher up employees telling them that them trying to unionize would undermine everything that they're working for and blah, blah, blah. It just, it's, it was getting out of control. It really was. It happens every time any union tries to form everywhere. True. But the software designers have needed to unionize for a while and I'm glad that they finally have software designers. Uh, the, I'm, this makes me think of a uh, motion picture effects industry, yeah, mm. which is hideous because those workers are exploited and and the way everything is set up, the the industry itself is exploited. Like yeah. you're you're getting effects houses getting bankrupted because of uh, the the contracts that were signed. Well, it's also why you see very few effects houses based domestically now. Mm-hmm. They're they're based overseas because you can be represented by any of the major, you know, motion picture and television unions if you're working in effects in movies and television, but by farming it out overseas, they're exempt from that. <laughs> I don't want to sound I'm trying not to sound with the tone of my voice negative it's just but it's a, it's been a long time coming. Yeah. I'm actually very pleased by this, but it's also a long road ahead for them. This is just the first step. Yeah. And it only gets more difficult from here until that contract is signed. Having been through that myself sure. a couple of times now, the point where you get up until you get that contract signed, you know, dealing with all the adversity leading up to that. We're going to have that soon with our current company that um, there's rumors about stuff they want to do, like taking away our employee dining room and making it a pay for dining and making us pay for having our uniforms laundered and stuff and it's like oh is that what's gonna happen that's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen but and i know there's our listeners that have occupations across across many swaths of choices um as someone who has worked most of his life in a non-union position and now finds himself in a union position if you can unionize do so do so it, it's it is a uh, yes it can be a rough road to get it done but once you are there and established your your way of life will change most likely for the much better and i don't i don't even know how to say this i mean i i realize there are people that work for companies that actually do care about and do take care of their employees yes those i could see them not needing a union for but those types of companies are fewer and far between these days as you have a lot more business school graduates going right into executive positions and companies have no actual knowledge about how and what the people that work for them do. And they're trying to squeeze every cent of profit out to increase their pocket, uh, pocketbook and bank account and don't realize that in many ways, they are ruining that company, not just for the people that work for it, but the people that patronize that company. And then they, you know, want to wonder why at the end of the day, it's like, well, why is our company failing? You know, why does everybody say that our uh, our customer service is terrible? Or why does everybody say that our product that we put out is, is not as good as it used to be? And I'm like, well, you cut all this stuff, mm-hmm. take away all the tools that uh, people have to make that product and or service better it's got to go somewhere 
And if it's going up the ladder to people that don't know what they're doing and you're taking it away from the people that need it to do their jobs, then, well, you're, you're not a solution. You're a part of the problem. All right, I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> Lucasfilm's upcoming Star Wars series, The Acolyte, is going to be a mystery thriller that will be set in, quote, a galaxy of shadowy secrets and emerging dark side powers in the final days of the High Republic era, unquote. Uh, showrunner Leslie Headland, who was the showrunner for Russian Doll, was interviewed about what to expect for the show. She is looking at Chinese martial arts movies, especially Wuxia movies, for mm. inspiration. Uh, Wuxia films are... Wuxia. That's what I said. Okay. Feige. Yeah. <laughs> uh, films are martial arts movies that also incorporate fantasy elements. Yep. They tell stories of working-class warriors who follow a code of chivalry in which they fight for social equality and righteousness, redress wrongs, remove oppressors, and bring retribution for past misdeeds. Uh, the, an acolyte in the Star Wars universe refers to, quote, a Sith who has just begun their training under an experienced Sith Lord, unquote. Uh, Amanda Sternberg, who was part of The Hate You Give and The Darkest Minds, is, start, is set to star in the series. So there's a little more about the acolyte, which we barely knew anything about yeah. from the announcement. So Yeah. So I, I like that. There yeah. you go. I like that a lot. I, Wuxia. <laughs> I like... Stories that are outside of the, I don't know if you want to call it the the prime characters, mm. where you're getting to tell other Sky, stories. Skywalkers. Skywalker yeah. family. Just say Skywalkers. Because I, I, honestly, that was a huge reason why I really liked the first two seasons of Mandalorian, because they didn't really start touching on the mm-hmm. Skywalker saga till the very end of the second season. Yeah. I liked it because it had a little cute puppet in it. Well, that too. But, I mean... You know, Rogue One was a fantastic movie that tied into that prime storytelling, the Skywalker saga. They did it without a cute puppet, too. Yeah, but they did well, it. They had. Uh, they Mark did it Harkin. with <laughs> with very few recognized characters, very few characters that you knew their names. Yeah, from the already established canon. It's really funny because I will contrast Star Trek and Star Wars by saying. That a lot of Star Trek is all it, it's always those characters, right? Yeah. Whatever series you come up with, sure. You 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 build your characters, you build your crew, which essentially essentially is a family, and you move forward. And I I just wonder with expanded universe and all that stuff that Star Wars seemed to be, the the allure seemed to be so family, right? The Skywalker family, but I wonder I wonder if that was an error. And thinking, well, yeah, we'll just we'll do young Han Solo, and we'll do young uh, Obi Wan, and we'll do young this person, and we'll do young that person, because it's all about those people. But in reality, um, it's so it's so incredibly rich. I think you can you can like, yeah, we 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 really don't need that connection to do a Star Wars, another Star Wars uh, set of movies or a TV show. You well, yeah. don't need it. You can bring up um, new characters like they did in Rebels. You can do right. uh, new stories uh, like they do in the video games, um, Fallen Order. And yeah. what was the, the one with the that you played a lot of that Dark, I didn't get to play? Dark any. Forces? Was that that one? Uh, oh, damn it. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, but yeah, it's the one where you're the 
um, your Vader's protege. Oh, yes. um, it'll it, it'll come to me Knights later. Knights of the Old Republic. No, okay. but that's another interesting way right. of, of going with the story. Yeah. You're telling a story that's like way further back. Even if it's ancillary. Even yeah. if it's ancillary and you have a little contact. It's all it's know? extra world building. Because it it's so big because it I don't know. It just it seems to me like you could actually conceivably conceivably you could look at the Star Trek milieu and you I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just I'm being screw headed. But you could actually say, okay, these stories are this is where the action is. This is what's happening in the Federation, in this galaxy, you know, in dealing with this is where it is. Whereas Star Wars, I swear to God, you can look at it and it's like there there must be a jillion stories out there that the Republic in decline or the Republic falling and the Empire rising. There's got to be shit going on everywhere. Sure. You know, even though like with DS9, right? DS9, the Dominion War, that was that was a quadrant wide that was that was half the galaxy actually even Mm -hmm. more than the quadrant but you kind of got a sense that the real action is right there centering on ds ds9 and And i'm not i'm not saying out of a out of a pure writing fiat just the way the world is constructed you kind of get that kind of feel and and frankly the world of Star Wars is a lot simpler than the world of Star Trek. Maybe that maybe that it, has something to do with it. The, uh, the Star Wars, the story is almost centered, it's good versus evil. Here's yeah. the good guys, here's the bad guys, go. Right. And that's not what Star Trek is at all. Mm-hmm. So that that's... Which is kind of one of, the, I mean, that's one of the things I like about Star Trek. Sure. Is that it, it becomes... Uh, you don't have that distinctive... Good evil right. definition. As, as there's forces. Yeah, you I, have. I'm more compelled by stories. There's a lot more nuance, a lot mm. more uh, painting a picture. Well, you know, maybe from this person's point of view, right? This person is evil, but yeah. then when you turn around and look at that person's perspective on the story, you get a completely different. Take. And it's a choice. Good and yeah. evil turn out to be results of your actions, right? Then opposed to a force in of itself, maybe taking action on your life or something, you know, it's just like, I mean, you look at Anakin and you can almost, you could almost be like, well, yeah, there are choices there, but in some ways, the poor kid didn't stand a chance. No, no, he was, he was run by the virus inside him. Well, yeah, <laughs> the, 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 the evil had just like, okay, this is, this is my boy. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and and you know, it's like he 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 doesn't stand a chance. Not to mention, there were plenty of opportunities established in the story for the Jedi Council to go. Wait whoa, a minute, whoa, 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 yeah, we need to. Well, that and the Jedi. One of the big problems, of course, there is uh, is for narrative. They wanted to do the whole. He's too old to begin the training, which is like if you can have that kind of power. You know, inherent in somebody, you you never go. Mm, he's too old. He's, he's too old. Just let him go. Exactly. <laughs> just set him out free in the wilderness. Everything because it's just too dangerous to do otherwise. No. Yeah. That and that was one of for me. That was one of the big holes of the whole. I understand why they did it, narratively why Lucas made that choice. But it's sort of like that is just one of the most. Still one of my biggest... You're not going to go to Star Wars for sci-fi logic, but that was still one of the most illogical things ever. 
What were we talking about? We were talking about... <laughs> 20th Century Studios is producing a new adaptation of Alan Moore and artist Kevin O'Neill's acclaimed comic book series, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, for Hulu. The story centers on a team of literary heroes from the Victorian England, including Captain Nemo, the Invisible Man, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mina Harker, and Alan Quartermain, teaming to fight a common enemy, which includes squaring off against Fu Manchu, Professor Moriarty, and the alien invaders from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. The first movie... Was a disappointment and, and a box office bomb. Mm. According mm-hmm. to this new report, the creative team is, quote, returning to the core comic books for their take, unquote. The project's being developed yeah. by screenwriter Justin Haith, who did Revolutionary Road and Red Sparrow. Uh, Don Murphy, who produced the original adaptation, has returned to produce this one as well. Was it Bleeg, Todd, that was like, I remember somebody at Trek was super, super excited about that movie coming out. Oh, boy. And then when it came out, it was Whoa. just devastated. I could imagine. I, I, I swear, I think it was Agnello. It uh, sounds like it sounds So like if you're Agnello listening, thing. Todd, uh, let me know, because I, I just, I remember, yeah. no, Todd Agnello, <laughs> oh. not you, Bleak. But, because I swear to God, I remember having that conversation where it was just like leading up to the movie coming out. Oh, I'm so excited. They're finally going to do the league. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then after the movie comes out going, they destroyed it. Oh, my it God. Just, it's it's a terrible film. I mean, it's... I'm, I remember watching it and thinking, you know what? There's so much unrealized potential here. Yeah. I mean, d- discounting the bad CG, because there's some bad CG in that film. Things got like, sloppy. It's It's terrible. Well, it's 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 funny because there were even some takes in there that I could like, like the Dorian Gray thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, that's I could I could even see Alan Moore maybe even coming up with this, like you know, yeah. Sure. Um, Mina as a vampire, it's like well, there's possibility there, but I was so disappointed that they didn't use Mina as the leader. Leader which she was in the comic and was done so well and her character was done so well that I couldn't I couldn't get past that to appreciate any other angle. I even was like Tom Sawyer, you know. Right. I, I can I actually this could sort of fit in there. Uh, and I loved I loved the Hyde Jekyll mm-hmm. interactions like every time he looks in the mirror, you know, "Oh, Henry, oh, Henry, you know, all that. Let me out quick, you know, and it's all that stuff. I could actually, there were takes in there that I was like, this this is actually kind of interesting. And I, I put those things off on James Robinson. I, I'm, because he wrote the, uh, the screenplay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just from Starman, this is a guy who, who can, who I, I have great confidence in. But so much of the way things just fell apart. And obviously it's like, hey, we got Sean Connery as Quatermain, so he has to be the leader. He has to be kick-ass. Yeah. He can't be a burnt-out, you know, opium <laughs> addict. And and it's and it's like that's just too fucking bad because yeah, that's the character. <laughs> and that was that changed everything. And just bending and twisting everything to fit around that, it just broke whatever potential yeah was had. There was yeah, and it's so silly too because. If somebody could have talked Connery into it, it would have been a fascinating portrayal for Sean Connery to play uh, an action hero who's past his prime and maybe even a little broken from it. 
Just imagine. And not even like the leader of the team. Yes, and you just imagine if you could have gotten yeah. that that role out of Connery. That could have just been and instead he quit acting because it was so horrible <laughs> for him, the poor right. bastard. It was just like, oh my God, the loss the as you said, the the potential. Yeah. Yeah. They just And I still remember hearing uh stories about from the set like some of the terrible experience that connery had was of his own making on that film like you know like you mentioned he quit acting after that because the overall film was a dud and and it was just he was was such a horrible experience all around and there are a lot of other people like um he's part of the reason it was such a horrible experience Mm -hmm. but hey we're not talking about that yeah (laughs) you would want to you would want to hear you would want to hear what happened on that end because i mean i hate to say it about the guy because i do respect him as an actor but you know apparently the last few films that he did he was almost impossible to work with Mm -hmm. because he just he was in that very curmudgeonly right i'm i'm over this attitude sure yeah, well, that and the fact that uh, I, I had never known until they finally started talking about it that he had turned down Gandalf because he just yeah. he just didn't understand. Yeah, he never he had never read the he, books. He didn't never. get blockbusters, so yeah. the what this could be, and you know, uh, well, eighteen months filming in New Zealand, he was probably like, I'm, I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah, <laughs> there's just no way I can just oh. But so. the positive to come out of that is we got an amazing performance from Ian McKellen. Yes, well, it's one of, the, and it's also one of those things of uh, what would it, it'd be interesting to see a Sean Connery Gandalf, but McKellen definitely made it his own. He owned that role. It's when people often say, "Oh, you know, you had an offer for that Oscar-winning role. How do you feel about it now?" And it's funny. Because all of them are like, ah, well, you know, blah, I just miss my ba-ba-da. Nobody, very, very rarely does any actor go, look, uh, Todd won the Oscar for that. I don't know if I could have done that myself. Uh, it would have been a definite, different performance and a different role. So why even ask me, you know? But nobody ever does no, that. Well, it's, yeah. it's just like, God damn, Todd, and stab reading, me in the back again. And reading those books... McKellen's performance of Gandalf is not what I would have pictured in my head movie. Mm-hmm. Having seen him perform it... Now it's stuck. It's stuck. Yeah. I mean... Sure. Is it exactly the Gandalf from the books? No, of course not. But he made it his own character, and he made that character not just fit with the film and the, the, and the direction that the film was taken. He mm-hmm. made that character believable yeah in that world so i mean at at this part now at this point rather now i i you can't separate him out of that well i i would have liked to have seen so and so perform that role it's like no you you think gandalf in Mm -hmm. lord of the rings trilogy you think mckellen's performance well i i'd like to see so and so in that role but i'm 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 not going to be able to imagine it until i see it right you know it's you know i could all right let's put Let's put Connery in the robes, give him the big hat and the staff. I still really can't get beyond that point because McKellen... Spanish peacock. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, you know, it's just, there's so much... uh, Well, anyway. 
Yeah. A prequel to The Omen is in development from 20th Century Studios, entitled The First Omen. <laughs> Interesting. This will take place before the original 1976 movie in the chronology of the Omen film franchise. Okay, good. Like the Garden of Eden? Why is this not a news you don't give a shit about? I hemmed and hawed with it. <laughs> Arkasha Stevenson will make her be making her feature date hour and a half. Yeah, it is. Yep. <laughs> I was just looking at the clock myself. <laughs> feature directorial debut with the project after helming episodes of Legion and Briar Patch. Steven has also directed several episodes of sci-fi horror series Channel Zero. The movie is set for a rewrite, which Stevenson will work on with writing partner Tim Smith. David S. Goyer's Phantom Four will be producing, known for their previous involvement with Apple TV Plus's Foundation and Hulu's Hellraiser. Uh, the original movie is a cult classic, directed by Richard Donner and written by David Seltzer. Followed a young child named Damien Thorne, who was replaced at birth by his father. A series of violent deaths start happening, and this leads the family to discover Damien is the Antichrist. The Omen spawned into a franchise with several sequels, including Damien Omen 2, Omen 3, The Final Conflict, and Omen 4, The Awakening. And in 2006, the original film was remade. So we're getting a new Omen prequel. I only ever saw the first two, Omen and Damien Omen 2. I don't remember the third and the fourth ones yeah. at well, all. Well, it's what's really curious is that this this is open season. Right. You can tell any story you want for the first Omen because it's obviously not going to be about Damien because the Omen starts when Damien is a baby just mm-hmm. being born. So right. you can do anything you want with this movie. There you go. So I am curious as to see uh, what will happen with this one. Ah, wow. And, and this is someone who has seen the original Omen probably seven times and hasn't seen a single sequel at all. Yeah, I haven't seen any Oh, you haven't seen any of the sequels? No. Not Omen even two? two? through four, none of them. Really? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I saw the remake of the, the Omen. I didn't see that at all. I thought I saw it with you. Did Uh-oh. we? Uh-oh. That memorable, huh, Jeff? I guess. It, uh, frankly, he's uh, right not to remember. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it. Um, I I watched the original, you know, HBO, a, ba- a bajillion times, because um, it was always fascinating to me uh, and a little scary. At one point, you contemplate grabbing a Bible and just pasting every page on the walls of your room. It's you all know. for you. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It's just, but uh, ugh, the the sequel. So like, what? Rosemary's Baby isn't that sort of the sequel to Omen? Maybe you know, because uh, Damien is supposed to be terrible, and so Rosemary—I don't know. Okay, he whatever. His, he has his father's eyes. Yeah, have, uh, have they redone Rosemary's? Baby? I don't think they have. Have they? Hmm. I uh, no, I'm not that I'm aware of. Hmm. That's Rosemary's Baby. It's kind of a forgotten OG horror film in a way. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, yeah, I great movie. Yeah. Slow burner, but great. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean. Frank Sinatra left her because of it, but hey. <laughs> well. Some would call that a plus. Yeah. The dedicated Xbox. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, I'm already, I'm, I'm done. Xbox. <laughs> Wuxia. Yep, my, my brain is nothing but static electricity now. <laughs> the dedicated Xbox game streaming devices and smart TV apps that Microsoft has been discussing for years 
are now reportedly less than 12 months away. That's according to the new report from VentureBeat, which cites people familiar with the company's plans and claims that the next 12 months will see the launch of a Roku-like plug-in, or puck, that lets users stream Xbox games via the cloud. This device is said to be coming alongside a Samsung smart TV app, the first of its kind with a similar feature set. The Xbox streaming device will reportedly support movie and TV services as well as cloud-supported games. This would include Xbox Game Pass titles that are playable via cloud streaming. Xbox have been talking up new hardware and streaming devices since 2020 when Phil Spencer floated the idea of streaming sticks for what was then known as xCloud. In November 2021, Spencer confirmed that Xbox is working with TV manufacturers to get Xbox Cloud Gaming baked right into televisions, and if the reports are accurate, these projects could launch by next summer. Uh, but Xbox has yet to announce the official timeline. Huh. So, yeah, it is interesting. Well, it's, I mean, Stadia kind of right. kicked off as a non-console console, a streaming thing. But this is basically taking the Amazon Fire Stick and saying, this is your Xbox. Right. Mm, wow. There you go. We got to get in on that action, guys. We need the Geek Shock mobile game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can put it on TikTok and everything. Yeah. Another one of those goddamn Tic Tacs. <laughs> In fact, we could call that Geek Shock Tic Tac. I don't know what we do. I don't know either, but I'm, I'm, I'm down with the name. Monkeys, let us know what do you want in a Geek Shock mobile game. That is an excellent question. And we weren't talking like a good game. We're talking a mobile game here. <laughs> a time waster. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. You know. I mean, you could, you know, no RPGs, no action games. Mobile. No 80s Jeff looking for a parking space. I'm, t I'm over that. Oh, right. boy. You know, you know somebody's going to come up with that just driving around a well, It was already line. suggested. That's why I said it. Oh, so. It's man. match three minis, but they're all gray. <laughs> there you go. WandaVision director Matt Shackman has been hired by Legendary Television to helm the first two episodes of the upcoming series Godzilla and the Titans that is coming to Apple TV+. Oh, the series will follow the, quote, thunderous battle between Godzilla and the Titans that leveled San Francisco and the shocking new reality that monsters are real. The untitled series explores one family's journey to uncover its buried secrets and a legacy linking them to the secret organization known as Monarch, unquote. The series will be executive produced by co-creators Chris Black, who will also serve as showrunner, and Matt Fraction, alongside Safehouse Pictures' Joby Harold and Tony Tunnel and Toho Company Limited. Shackman was nominated for an Emmy for his work with WandaVision, and he's currently directing the Hulu Limited, limited series Immigrant and is set to direct the next Star Trek film for Paramount Pictures. Whoa. Uh, but His star is rising. Big time. But Matt Fraction... Part of this uh, yeah. Yeah. Has, has piqued my curiosity. Somebody right? saw that Hollywood money. <laughs> it's like, how many dollars per page do I get in uh, New York? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, comics is not where you go to hit big. Yeah. Until you hit it big. It's it's it, really. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the the artist. It's you get paid so little. And still to this day. And if you create something new, it's not yours. Yeah. But if you can establish your name, if you can become a brew baker, if you can become a, a Fige, you can... Uh, Fige. You can, uh, you can make it. But again, it's few and far between. Bryce. 
cow. Ha! I did it to you. <laughs> Back at you. Todd Bryce Tau. <laughs> I don't play Tau. I play Death Guard. Master Turgid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's looking at me. Why would you do that? What makes you Turgid? Write to us. Comments at the com. <laughs> And I want to thank all of our listeners, and we especially want to thank our Kofi members, Tier 3. We're going to run through Dan Steslasa, Daniel Loser, Snoop 2, Elizabeth W., Gabriel Adame, Adrian Kirsch, Major Man, Atomic Gumby, Michael Hoffman, Ezreal175, Bohan Nair, J.R. Conkle, The Microscope, Steve Biggs, David LePage, Elena Nupp, uh, Kenton Miller, and Asia Shakai. And of course, our Tier 4 members, King Vol, Deb T., David Farrar. And Tier 5 members, Leon Met, Jeff Harris, Jake Godbold, Ozzy Matt, Mad Martron, and Glumly. And of course, once again, thank you, especially to King Vald, for your one-off donation. Oh, once again, King Vald. Uh, this week. You, you with your crowns, sending us your crowners. Thank you so much. <laughs> and if you want to join our Kofi and help support the show, go to ko-fi.com slash geekshock and learn about all the tiers there. Yeah, I said it right. I, you I said, spit that out. I, I, I didn't even practice. And every yeah. tier has some benefits and to it. Every pro- and every benefit has some tiers. And, yeah. uh, and, and we at Geek Shock love to lick your tears. So just tear up. <laughs> I don't know. And until next week, I am Master Torgo. 80s Jeff. Commander Tear. And we'll talk to you next week in Geek. Yeah. And then we get to hear all the stories about where Deb and yeah. Dude went. and Deb and Dude. Deb and Dude. Deb, Deb and Dude. dude. That's, a, that's a spinoff podcast. It, <laughs> I would listen to it. <laughs> well, I'd listen to half of it. I'd watch it. Because, you know, um, uh, what are you going to say? Uh, Barry uh, Barry has a face made for uh, video. He, had, he, has a, he has a face made for radio. I'll, yeah. I'll give him that. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> how dare you guys talk about McDonald's stuff when I wasn't here? I know. I, was, I, was, was, I mean, a- all these years I've known you, I didn't know you had those collectibles just sitting around, and you're the only one with a complete set. That's, that's just crazy. I'll have to drag them out and show you guys something. Yeah, that's that's because I mean I've seen yeah. some of your other collectibles that you had when you were still living in Indiana that were, you know, not something that the general public has. But uh, sure, that was crazy. I had, I had a. Oh, and I have done the grilled cheese with mayonnaise instead of. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, instead of butter, I mean, when you think about it, it's basically just oil you're spreading on there, so right. it's a browning agent. It actually worked great. That that's what everybody says. I have to do yeah. it. I have to try it. And it seems like it's a lot easier because you just do a really thin layer on there versus mm-hmm. like really trying to get that butter on there. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but so. Uh, so is that your preferred method then for grilled cheese? Um, it depends. It depends on whether I'm doing it like in the air fryer or if I'm doing it in the pan. Wow. Okay. So if you're doing it in the pan, is that your preferred version of grilled cheese? It depends. depends on. <laughs> is it well, a cast iron pan? Here's, here's, is it stone? No, no, no. I was going to say... What depends on whether I am like really hungry and I'm in a hurry to make that sandwich and I'm waiting for the butter to thaw out enough that I can make it spreadable or right. if I'm going to say I'm really fucking hungry and I okay, want the sandwich okay, right now. Okay, let me lay it out. <laughs> Jeff, you are home from work. Uh-huh. You're a little tired, but not too tired. You still got a good four Mayonnaise. hours in. Okay. Yes. All right. Because so, it's just easy to spread it on and go right into the pan. That's the that's going to be my new question now from now on. Is like, well, Jeff, were you were you mayonnaise tired or butter tired? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
So you would prefer butter. Uh, and you know all Flavor-wise. other things being equal. <laughs> yes, I do prefer butter. Okay, okay. that I think that's what we gained now. <laughs> that that was what we were looking for in the first place. Yeah, now, you know you, you uh, now it's American mm-hmm. to put butter to put the butter in the fridge because mm-hmm. actually most most cultures they have the little butter dish and the cover on it. And you oh. you being from Kansas, I'm surprised. Uh, my, you go my, for that. You know, it's funny. My grandparents always kept the butter on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, out and, at room temperature. And, and room my, temperature butter, dude, is is mayonnaise spreadable. But, but I was going to say is my grandparents always left the butter out on the table. My parents always kept it in the refrigerator. Yeah, mine too. Rebels. I used to hate that. My God. My mom would buy occasionally buy a butter instead of margarine. Right. And you're just trying, and it's just tearing up your toast, and you, yep. you don't just press so hard. Ah, oh, press! You, you you don't press hard, then the butter patty just sticks to your knife, and you just you're waving it over your toast. I always I, liked having worked in restaurants. The fact that you always have melted butter available, mm-hmm. and and then discovering that they have a little thing that's basically it's just a roller that goes into that melted butter, and you roll your your bread over the top of that and put it right on the flat griddle and it's complete it's oh it makes the best oh butter toast well now we know what to get jeff for christmas i want <laughs> chunks of butter on my toast well that i often had i i, I eventually gained the skill of just cutting it so i could just layer on the chunks oh, okay. and then i'm like oh they too much butter like there's such a thing uh, so you uh you enjoyed deep fried butter at those indiana fairs <laughs> you know what indiana fairs that hasn't caught up to that yet. It's, it's, You're uh, shitting me. Uh, no, no. Uh, really? It hasn't come over from Iowa? Funnel cakes, deep fried yeah. Twinkies, and deep fried Snickers is typically uh, what you get in a Midwest. Deep fried Snickers. That ultra. State yeah. fair. And, and again, the last Indiana fair I went to was like 25 years ago. So at that point, pretzels they, were still inventive. Yeah. Deep fried Snickers are pretty amazing. I, I can imagine. Had a, We had a Sunday one time that had deep fried Snickers on it. Oh, so good. Yeah, but wow. there are some things that... Philosophically, morally, mm-hmm. I can only do once. Okay. And deep fried just about anything are those things. Right. Oh. Like, it's like, I have to try it just because I have to have the knowledge. But in the knowledge, knowing that that bite is the last one I'll probably take for the rest of right. my life. Right. Sure. Morally. Yes. So, like, killing younglings. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's just like that. Uh, <laughs> like, the heart attack grill. I've eaten there once and never will again, but I had to try it once. Now, um, go ahead. No. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Why what? What you got? No, I was I was just gonna say, did you report your visit to the heart attack grill to your cardiologist? And maybe they can make a connection there. Right. It was twenty years ago and that's when things would have gone off. It's possible. <laughs> it was that buttermilk milkshake and the lard fries. God almighty oh that that sounds actually pretty good. It is now, of course it is. Now I wanna go there. Well, if you do only go once. <laughs> Would you take me? I will. Ta- I would gladly take you and watch you eat. Okay, Jeff. Sure, why not? All right. Oh, wow. Of course, I know I won't be able to help myself. I don't want to be getting yeah. something. Well, that I'm taking that for granted. Right. I'll, I'll like, go across oh. the street to the Denny's and oh. grab a salad for him. So we'll all be eating heart attack grill, and he'll be like, "I'm a <laughs> Well, they sell pell mell cigarettes, so at least I have something that's bad for me. <laughs> <laughs>